the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, what the hell is going on is we're going to be talking about Bernie Sanders' foreign policy. But before that, a word from our sponsors. Wait, that's you, right? Our sponsor is you. We have no sponsors. Okay, so, so you. Yeah, so me. Uh, <laughs> so we're new at this podcasting thing, and I've been told that we should be asking you to subscribe. Uh, so if you've been listening to the podcast, you like our guests, you like this discussion, take a moment right now to just... And you go. love me and don't love Mark or... Vice versa. Or vice versa. Absolutely. This is small segment audience. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you like either one of us, or even if you hate us but like hating us and listen to the podcast because you hate us, whatever your reason, we ask you, go, go online right now, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and hit subscribe and even rate us. But only rate us if you like us. That's a good point. Excellent. All right. So All right. Bernie Sanders' foreign policy. Yes. Yeah. You know something? It's a complete throwback for me to talk about Bernie Sanders' foreign policy. It reminds me of being in grad school and talking about the foreign policy of the Soviet Union. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our friend Eli Lake uh, had a great tweet today. He said, stop the propaganda. He's not a commie. He's a Democratic communist. Of course. <laughs> Because, because, of course, folks, you understand, Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. And this is not me being silly. Bernie Sanders is a Democratic socialist. Which is like, you know, every socialist regime throughout history. Always like the, the North Korea is the Democratic People's Republic. You know, that no, every socialist fact, regime always puts Democratic before it. It's like a way to soften the, uh, no, the, I the, soft, I, the hard I edges. My, so, you know, one of the things that is amazing to me is that a socialist Let's forget his foreign policy, even though we're here to talk about that today, that a socialist is actually someone who is seriously in the running. I saw the polls that came out this week. Bernie Sanders has moved to a double-digit national lead over his uh, Democratic opponents, his primary opponents. What the hell? The other thing is, you know, that we're living in an age right now, and I think I want to do an, an episode about this at some point with some really interesting experts on this. But we're living in an age between the collapse of, of communism slash socialism in 1989 and today. The world is incredibly better by every single metric. Our friends across the way at Brookings had a report recently in September of 2018 for the first time in human history since the Stone Age, there are more people who are middle class or rich than there are people who are poor in the world. The world is getting richer. People are more prosperous, fewer people living in abject poverty. There's better medicine. There's better health care. There's better access to it. There's better cleaner water. You know, by almost every metric, the world is getting better. And why is that? It's because of the collapse of socialism and the rise of, of democratic capitalism, to, to contradict your phrase, because it is democratic, across the world. And here in the United States, we're doing better. I mean, if you were a human being and you were given a choice, you could be born at any time in human history from the moment of the creation of the earth until today, and you didn't pick now, you'd be insane. And it's because of capitalism. And so in the wake of all that, we're going to elect a socialist. 
I, I think come November, the answer to that will be absolutely not. I continue to believe that this is a center-right country, not a country that will accept a socialist. I think people are a lot more conservative on these issues than Bernie Sanders realizes. And I think the people who are the core of Bernie Sanders' base, young people, etc., are people who, generally speaking, do not turn out to vote, whereas older people who, unlike Bernie Sanders, remember the true evil of socialism, the true evil of the Soviet Union, the true evil of the countries that he has admired over the years, the Castros, the Chavezes, the Ortegas in Nicaragua, you know, all of those people who Bernie Sanders has made a point throughout his career of flattering, admiring, inviting when possible to the United States, or just going to visit them when he can. On his honeymoon. On his honeymoon, he went to the Soviet Union, right? All the older people who make up the core of American voters do remember that, and I don't think they're going to pull the lever from Bernie. But here's the other thing, is that, so the argument for democratic socialism is... We're not like those socialists. It's all you always tar us with being, you know, communists, and we were against the authoritarianism of the Soviet Union back in the day. Because Bernie's seventy-eight years old, he he has a record. He was friendly to all of those people <laughs> at the time. Uh, so it's going to be very hard for him to separate himself from the socialist regimes. He was pro all these regimes. He has softened the those views though somewhat. I mean, if you yeah. look at if grown you... in office. Yeah, he's he's grown in office, and I mean, look, what you always want is you want someone to moderate their views in order to be more in step with the with the zeitgeist of the American people. I think the challenge for us with Bernie Sanders is that that moderation belies a, you know, six decades of history and a six decade record in which he he did not distance himself, in which people like the Maduros who are now crushing the Venezuelan people, like people like Maduros were people he admired. He just called Maduro a vicious dictator. And uh, and I don't think that actually represents what he thinks. Well, no, I mean, for, he was against recognizing Guaido right. as, as as the legitimate president of. Uh, he's of he's Venezuela. been against a lot of things. He was against NATO expansion. Mm-hmm. He he obviously was against the Iraq War, which you know is a black mark in my book. But obviously, for many Democratic yep. voters, it's like a big, 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 big chuck mark. I guess the whole narrative that our friend Jackson Deal makes in the Washington Post recently, um, in which he said, you know, he wrote a piece that's basically about the the Bernie foreign policy you never knew, you know, is that Bernie's really a democratic internationalist. You know, I love Jackson, but I find that very hard to swallow. Jackson is definitely a, cha- a champion a of democracy. Right. But if you read that speech, he was he, this column he wrote was about this speech that uh, that Bernie Sanders gave in 2017 in, in Fulton, Missouri, in the same place where Churchill gave the Iron Curtain speech. It, it wasn't no Iron Curtain speech. <laughs> no. No, it wasn't. Um, but it did attempt, I thought very interestingly, to recast a record that frankly has not been supportive of democracy or of democratic internationalism as one that that was uh, you know it was sort of bernie's extreme makeover speech and it's interesting it, and and of course people who are with bernie sanders aren't with bernie sanders because of his foreign policy yeah. let let's be honest this is going to become an issue if he becomes the candidate otherwise i don't think any of the bernie bros that are in his camp are people who are there because foreign policy has been a big element of of what he has stood for 
but here's his attempt. So what does he what does he lay out for us exactly? <laughs> well, he starts out by talking about all the young Americans killed in Iraq and Afghanistan and all the people that we killed, hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq and Afghanistan. Then he mm-hmm. talks about how we spend too much on defense, that we spend more on defense than the next 12 nations combined. And uh, he, I, how, I think Bernie, and and wanna... Bernie doesn't know that 50 percent of what we spend on defense is actually in defense entitlements, health care, pensions. Exactly. The section of the speech that I thought was most telling, he says, some in Washington continue to argue that benevolent global hegemony should be a goal of our foreign policy, that the U.S., by virtue of extraordinary military power, should stand astride the world and reshape it to its liking. I would argue events in the past two decades have utterly discredited that vision. Basically, what he is against is the Pax Americana. What he described there is the foreign policy consensus of both Democrats and Republicans from the end of World War II through the Cold War up until very recently. And he's against it. So I want to I want to actually couch that another way. When we warn people about what it would mean if America ceded its leadership role, and we have this discussion a lot about Donald Trump. So yeah. it's not just this is not just about Bernie. What we warn people is nature abhors a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Don't think to yourself that when the United States stepped back, that other would-be leaders won't step in, whether it's Vladimir Putin or it's Xi Jinping, and the only person ironically, who would say, yeah, that'd be a good thing, would be Bernie Sanders, right? (laughs) That's the difference. Most people are like, yeah, that would be a bad thing, but we can always jump back in when we need to. For Bernie Sanders, the answer is no. Everything that America touches in the world, it makes it worse. And maybe it'd be fine if Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping actually stood astride the world and there was a Pax Sinica or a Pax Rusica or whatever it is that one would call it. Or a Pax uh, Pyongyangica. Oh. <laughs> I think even he might draw, he might draw the line there. But it's important to understand that it's not just that he is anti-America and what America has done in the world, not just over the last twenty years, but over the last seventy years, but that he is against what America has wrought, which is a global system that has brought us more prosperity, more peace, mm-hmm. more peace and than the world has ever known. That's exactly right. And look, the the problem we face right now is that there's nobody making the argument for this system, for the Pax Americana anymore, in either party. But- we need to go to our guest, but I want you to raise a, a particular issue that, that we were just talking about offline, because I think this is another element that people haven't paid attention to, which is not what Bernie doesn't want to do, which we know about and we can agree or disagree about, some of the things that Bernie does want to do in the world and what they're going to cost. This is a great question. So it's fascinating. So we, there's two foreign policy questionnaires that the Democratic candidates have all been asked to fill out. One was by the New York Times and the other one's by the Council on Foreign Relations. And Bernie filled out this one for the Council of Foreign Relations. And he was asked, what are some of the foreign policy achievements you support in the uh, since the end of World War II? So one of the things that he cited was the Marshall Plan, which he said was an accomplishment that was done without firing a single bullet, which is a little bit weird because we overthrew Nazi Germany with military force. But he he talked about the Marshall Plan, and he says that we need a Green New Deal for the world. A Green New Deal for the world? Bad idea for us. I mean, (laughs) imagine for the world. My friend Brian Riedel at the Manhattan Institute has actually gone and calculated the cost of Bernie Sanders' domestic proposals. And with the number he's come up with, $97.5 $97.5 trillion in new spending over 10 years. We can get out of the defense budget. Seven, seven, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 70% of GDP spent by government, half of the American workforce working for the government. That's the domestic. 
That's uh-huh. like the Green New Deal here at home uh-huh. and all the other stuff and Medicare for all. He wants a Green New Deal for the world? How much is that going to cost? <laughs> I mean, Can you really put a price on virtue, though, Mark? No. If you're a democratic socialist, apparently not. Apparently not. So we've got Josh Rogan uh, with us to talk about this. He had a terrific column in The Post called Bernie Sanders' Foreign Policy is a Risk for Democrats Against Trump. He's a uh, he's a good friend of ours and a good friend of AEI's. Uh, he's a columnist for The Post, but he had worked previously at Bloomberg View, at Newsweek, at The Daily Beast, at Foreign Policy, at CQ. Now he's got this terrific column at, at The Post, uh, as you do, Mark. And in addition, he's an on-air uh, commentator for CNN. So it's great to have him here. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. All right. So you just wrote a great column in The Washington Post, and you said that Bernie Sanders' foreign policy poses an unappreciated risk for Democrats in a general election contest against Donald Trump. Tell us why. Sure. Well, if you've watched the Democratic primary so far, you've noticed that foreign policy has not featured prominently in any way, not in the debates. When it comes up, it's like a two-line discussion that devolves into who voted for the Iraq war. The candidates don't bother really putting out foreign policy plans anymore. They're guessing that people don't go into the polling booth, close the curtain, pull the lever based on your Libya position, right? And in the context of the Democratic primary, right, the the two sides are pretty well established. You've got a centrist, moderate, what used to be a leftist, but now is centrist Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. And then on the other side, you've got Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are basically running against the foreign policy establishment and foreign policy record of both parties in the last 75 years. Now, with Bernie Sanders, it's particularly interesting because he has a 40, 50, 60 year record of doing interesting things on foreign policy that, again, has never really come up. And, uh, you know, it occurred to a lot of people who uh, suggested this to me, and that's why I wrote the column, that if and when he were to get into a battle with Donald Trump for the general election contest, that sort of moratorium on talking about all this stuff would definitely go away. And it's worth examining, first of all, do these policies present a vision of Bernie Sanders as a president that is a vision of foreign policy that most people would like and make sense and would defend our interests and values? But secondly, what are the political vulnerabilities that Trump would surely exploit? And my column kind of focused on the second. So first I went back to when he was mayor of Vermont and uh, he was super active. He, you know, not only traveled to the Soviet Union, established his sister city's relationship there with his hometown of Burlington, Vermont. He spoke praisingly about the Soviet system and, you know, alluded to the misconceptions of the United States of you know, how bad it really was and for the people there. A lot of those things seem ridiculous when you look at them. Then when he was in Burlington, he hosted not only Soviet officials, but Cuban officials. He traveled to Nicaragua to make common cause of the Ortega regime. And you could, when I talked to the Bernie people about this, they were very clear. They said, listen, if we, you want to have a debate about 1980s Latin America death squad sponsored by the Reagan administration, fine. But we don't <laughs> think that like a lot of voters are really interested in that. The 1980s called, they want their foreign policy back. Right. And, you know, it's true <laughs> that like if you ask most voters, how do you feel about Reagan and, and the Nicaragua, you'll get a blank stare. But it forms a indisputable pattern of Bernie supporting leftist socialist, what I would say authoritarian regimes. And you could be sure that the Trump campaign would seize on that. In fact, they already have. And then when you add the fact that Bernie self-identifies as a democratic socialist, well, then you could see the narrative emerging pretty clearly. Now, what's interesting uh, about Bernie is, of course, that, I mean, 
he calls himself a democratic socialist, but of course the people who he's admired so much over the years are not democratic socialists. They're tyrants. In the old days, uh, people like us used to call people like Bernie Sanders fellow travelers. Mm-hmm. And that was not a nice expression. It's not so much in vogue anymore. But it basically meant that when given a choice to side with the United States or with our nuclear enemy, the Soviet Union, Bernie pretty much every time chose the Soviet Union and, again, voted with his feet. He also more recently spoke very admiringly about the Cuban health care system and about the health care system in Venezuela under Chavez. So, I mean, it's not just old history. He's been talking this way even in the 21st century. Right. You can see that his worldview is steeped in the idea that American values promotion and intervention, not just military intervention, but intervention of any kind abroad, is more negative than positive, right? So when he saw the U.S. trying to uh, work towards freedom, democracy, and human rights in other countries, he stood on the other side of it in many instances. Now, I think what's interesting is that when you bring it forward to 2020 or even to the time that he was a senator, his rhetoric and his framing has totally changed, okay? He's become more professional about it. And and what he will say, and and I think this Venezuela example here is perfect, is that, no, no, he's for democracy and freedom and human rights. He just wants to get there a different way, and that different way is not for us to push it or or much less impose it, but for to, to support whoever he believes at the time is supporting it. And then you could quibble with which person he chose in which instance. You know, he came under fire on the Venezuela thing because he didn't support the bipartisan and administration consensus that we should switch our recognition to Guang Guaido. Now, we could have a discussion about that all to itself because it doesn't really seem like that recognition has forced Maduro to step down and created the change in Venezuela that we seek. But the point is that uh, that brought up his long history of supporting leftist regimes, sort of whitewashing their atrocities. And then he was pushed and he said, no, 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 I believe that Maduro is a vicious tyrant, which is true, but basically we shouldn't do anything about it. And that's the gap in the new Bernie policy. It's not that he doesn't support democracy and human rights. It's that he just doesn't support doing much about it because he doesn't think America can play that role in the world. And I think that's the biggest difference between him and the other but candidates. But what he, the way he couches it is he says that, look, regime change has been bad. Iraq was a bad war. We've been engaged in regime change around the world. we got to stop using our military to change the regimes in, in foreign countries. But when he did this New York Times questionnaire, which they, which they asked him about, uh, but they question was, is it appropriate for the United States to provide non-military support for regime change efforts as the Trump administration did in Venezuela? He said no. So he isn't just against military intervention. I mean, he, you know, the argument for him is now he's pro-democracy. He's, you know, our friend Jackson Deal had a column uh, the other day going back to the speech that he wrote in... My uh, boss. Yes, my boss too. So, but I mean, basically going to the speech that he gave in Fulton, Missouri in 2017, where he talked about democratic, we need to return. Trump's problem is that he's for the autocrats and aligning us with the autocrats. We got to be for democracy. But when it comes to non-military support for the democratic movement in Venezuela, he's against it. Right, right. So what centrist Democrats and what I think the Biden and Buttigieg and Klobuchar campaigns would say is that one of the greatest foreign policy attacks Democrats have against Trump is that he supported all these bad actors and made common cause with all these psychotic dictators. And Bernie's record undermines the ability of Democrats to make that argument. But I think what you're getting at here is the broader problem that I see with sort of progressive left Democrat foreign policy, which is that they want to essentially 
you know, say that they support all these things, but when it comes time to actually govern, they can't connect them to a policy that actually would result in those, any of those outcomes. If you don't believe in sanctions, if you don't believe in using aid as a tool of foreign policy, if you don't believe in military might, or at least the threat of military might to pressure these bad actors to not stop their bad behavior, well, then what exactly do you want to do that has any hope of promoting these things? And what the law we say is, oh, well, more diplomacy, more diplomacy, more diplomacy, which is nobody could argue against, but it doesn't get you from here to there. And you see that in Elizabeth Warren's foreign policy, too. She wants less military, more diplomacy, less intervention, but she still wants the world to adhere to American values of democracy, human rights, freedom, rule of law, accountability, transparency. And it just doesn't wash. And no one could ever explain to me how you do more with less, how you protect America without doing anything about it and how taking our hands off the steering wheel doesn't prevent the car from sliding off the road. Exactly. No, look, so I read your piece, read the answers to the New York Times questionnaire, and then I went back and read Bernie's 2017, to be fair. And what Bernie Sanders says in this speech makes absolutely no sense. He talks about (laughs) what one of my former colleagues calls, you know, Airy fairy crap, right? People to people exchanges. You know, that's awesome. Who, who is against people to people exchanges? Exactly. Maybe Donald Trump is, but of course he he gives you absolutely no clear worldview in this speech, except that he thinks that everything America has done, and he goes all the way back to the fifties and Mossadegh, which of course he remembers more clearly than I do, because thank God he's like twenty years older. Um, he was there. <laughs> Right. It's, he, he does. You know, he, he goes back and he excoriates the United States. His foreign policy vision is everything America does in the world is bad. And if we're going to mitigate it, we should just bring foreigners over here and talk to them. And right. Something. Right. And, you know, just to, again, if we're being fair to Bernie, let's be totally fair. You know, if you say that all of America's foreign policy activities of the past 70 years were bad, in a few instances, you'd definitely be right, right? So when you talk about the Iraq war vote, yeah, he was right about that and Joe Biden was wrong. When you talk about PNTR for China, I believe he was right about that and Joe Biden was wrong. When he talked about his early opposition to the Saudi war in Yemen, or at least the tactics they used, I think facts have proven that he was more right than those who supported the Saudi intervention. But that doesn't mean that his theory of the case of how the world works is correct or that it's a good policy writ large. I mean, that's just the problem with the whole endless wars crowd, right? Even Pete Buttigieg, will be, oh, we got to end the endless wars. We got to end the endless wars. That sells in a primary. It might even sell in a general election. Even Donald Trump has said it. Every, yeah, Donald Trump is actually doing it. I mean, yeah. I was in Munich last weekend where they were planning the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Munich is a very popular place to surrender. That's what you need to remember, Josh. <laughs> this is the Munich, for listeners who are not familiar, this is with the Munich Security Conference, which is just often described as like a national security Davos. Call right. it a, a petting zoo for dictators. There you That's go. That's a separate <laughs> podcast, probably. Yep. But, you know, the bottom line is that, yeah, endless wars is a, is a nice thing to say, but it doesn't mean anything unless you take the next step and explain, okay, how do we end the wars, but also keep America safe and also promote our values and interests. And that's what I haven't heard from Bernie or Warren, for that matter. So in that 2017 speech, it's interesting, when he's talking about the people and people exchanges, he said he was explaining what he did in Burlington, Vermont, when he was mayor. And he's Funny like, you and I both I was, picked this. I was mayor of the city of Burlington, Vermont in the 1980s when the Soviet Union was our enemy. 
And it occurred to me, did he ever refer to the Soviet Union as our enemy during the Cold War? Because you, in your column, you say that a Democratic official associated with a rival campaign gave you a lot of documents about from the Sanders archive at the University of Vermont about his foreign policy activity. Talk to us a little bit about how Bernie talked about the Soviet Union when the Cold War was actually going on as opposed to now. Right. Basically, he went there and he said he painted a rosy picture of how their system worked in terms of how it worked for their people, in terms of their people's agency uh, to affect change. And in terms of and he tried to, I mean, took the Soviet line of how their system was producing in a way that didn't match with the facts and definitely didn't match with U.S. policy at the time. You know, didn't match with Gorbachev, who was saying we need perestroika and glasnost. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, he was he was always more doctrinaire. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, you know, I think if you if you again if you bring that forward, what you see is that he's become much more savvy about talking these things. But let's look at what they're putting out and see if it matches with a Bernie's record and b what he's putting out in terms of what he would actually do in the world. And I think what you'll find is a stark departure from the consensus of American foreign policy, which, again, voters may like, but has implications not only for Bernie versus Trump, but all of the other Democrats running underneath him, right? If he's going to be the standard bearer of the Democratic Party, this is a wholesale change in what Democratic foreign policy would be at a moment when actually, if you think about it, it's the Republicans who are turning inward under Trump and the Democrats who are becoming more more hawkish, especially on Russia, again, for political reasons. But this would be a total reversal of that. And so he's very hawkish on Russia now that the Cold War is over. No, he's right. ver- no, 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 no. He's only hawkish on Russia because of Trump. Yeah, this no, that, is, that's true this of all is, Demo- most Democrats. Right. Uh, so uh, it gets to the, the core of the argument against uh, nominating Bernie to lead the Democratic Party, which is that are you trying to build enthusiasm on the far left as seems to win a primary, or are you trying to catch all of those people in the middle, in the middle of America, but also in the middle of the political spectrum, who might actually win you the presidency? And foreign policy is just, again, one small piece of that. So you pinpointed something that I think is really interesting, which is that basically Bernie Sanders has the exact foreign policy that the Koch brothers would have endorsed. Uh, Obviously, one remaining Koch brother, but this is basically anti-interventionism to the point of complete surrender in a variety of situations. But not on trade, right? Well, they don't because libertarians and uh, socialists do not take the same view of unions exactly. and do not take the same view of trade. Absolutely. Ironically, of course, Donald Trump is actually closer to Bernie on these kinds of issues than, than many. Tonight, we're, we're going to have a, a debate where the two most prominent targets will be Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg. And if you think about that, well, that's even crazier because here you have Mike Bloomberg, who's like a hawk on Iran, but thinks Xi Jinping is not a dictator. And, you know, his foreign policy is a, a mess. And there could be a scenario where Bernie Sanders can argue that he's actually more pro-democracy and human rights than Mike Bloomberg, because at least he has a theory of the case of how you get to that. And then Democrats looking for like a values-based interest promoting foreign policy would have to think to themselves, oh, my God, do I choose Mike Bloomberg, who thinks that like the Chinese Communist Party is responsive to the Democratic wishes of its people, which is insane, or Bernie Sanders, who doesn't want America to do anything in the world, but at least rhetorically supports the idea of democracy, freedom, and human rights. And uh, that is was, would be unimaginable in any other Democratic Party scenario. Uh, I want to talk to you a second about, about Israel, because another thing you mentioned in your column but has been a consistent pattern in Bernie Sanders' voting and in his political statements is that he is very hostile to the state of Israel. Yeah. Listen, I think Donald Trump has made a very clear political play, which is to be as pro-Netanyahu as physically possible. And that is a donor play, not a voter play. Seventy-four percent of American Jews voted for 
Hillary Clinton, despite the fact that she was less supportive of Netanyahu. But the big donors are more supportive of Netanyahu. And that has been the typical breakdown going back to these elections. We never had a candidate uh, as critical of not just Netanyahu, but Israeli policy writ large as Bernie Sanders in a major campaign. Now, there's no doubt that if, if you look at Bernie Sanders' uh, beliefs, they line up with you know, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, AOC. These are the people who believe that a wholesale change in the U.S. approach to, to Israel is warranted based on their grievances with Israeli policies of all kinds. And so is, now, it unfair to, is it unfair for us to sort of analogize uh, Sanders to Corbyn, the Labour Party leader in the U.K.? I think Corbyn is, has been more outwardly and publicly saying things that you could pin as anti-Semitic, although I don't claim to be a Corbyn expert. I, don't, I think this anti-Semitic charge is easy to throw around, and, and it's actually not really helpful because uh, I, you know, I don't think that Bernie would admit that or even claim that, that, that that's something that he feels in his heart. So let's just put that aside and say that his views on Israel and the occupation represent, again, a, a very small part of the American electorate and actually a very uh, relatively small part of the American Jewish electorate. Most American Jews, uh, including myself, including my parents, are somewhere in the middle, right? They have issues with things that Netanyahu has done and, and some of the implementation of the occupation, but they don't want to you know, go as far to the left as, as Bernie would have. But that seems to be how he believes, and that's what he's going to run on. And again, I think that has what? implications for Democrats down the ticket. Quick question, then a follow-up. Would you agree that Bernie Sanders' foreign policy views are out of the mainstream, traditional democratic mainstream? Absolutely. Okay. But, and that's their selling point. That's okay. what he likes about And it. so here's the question. In 2016, a lot of conservative internationalists came out and the Never Trump movement started. And they came out and they signed letters and they said that Trump's foreign policy, he wants to break with the traditions of American engagement. He doesn't support NATO. He doesn't support all these things. And Never Trump. Where's the Never Bernie movement? Right, right. Well, I think you're going to see it <laughs> on the debate stage tonight in Nevada. But, uh, you know, listen. Uh, no, but, uh, are we? Are, are we? Are we actually? Because Not the say. candidates. I'm talking about, like, where are the people who served in the Obama administration and the Clinton administration in foreign policy positions right. who are appalled at the direction that Bernie Sanders wants to take our country on foreign policy and are willing to stand up and say, never Bernie? That's a good question to ask them. I, I think, you know, two things. One, how did all those never Trump letters really work out. They didn't stop Trump, and they kept a lot of good people who subsequently wanted to serve from getting served. And that's not their fault. That's Trump's fault. Uh, so I think that there, if you had to do a sort of a, a back analysis on that, maybe some Democrats saw that as, as not working out the way that, that they wanted to. It could be a lack of courage. It could be the fact that we haven't gotten there yet, right? We're still trying to... The most centrist Democrats are still trying to stop Bernie, and uh, they haven't figured out how to do that. And I also think what you're getting at here is really a core issue, which is, you know, do centrist right and left foreign policy candidates have a political constituency for that foreign policy? That's a great question. Where is that gone, right? We, we, we say over and over again that, oh, well, the establishment failed to bring along the regular American people uh, in this project that we've been building since the Cold War, at least, since, or maybe since World War II. We failed to address the downsides of globalization for American workers. And, and uh, that's a failure of both parties and a lot of us in Washington that we can't ignore. So, I, you know, what the result is that, you know, and with also with the, the diversification of the media and the fact that a lot of voters are now just going to those parts of the Internet where these types of foreign policy, this type of foreign policy lives, we're not making the sale. OK, so it's hard for 
centrist Democrats, even the ones who believe this, to get up and say to their constituents, oh, no, Bernie's foreign policy is so dangerous, it has to be stopped because they're going to lose half their voters because they haven't figured out how to sell their vision of American foreign policy, despite the fact that I would say it's provided the world with 80 years of the most prosperity, freedom, and uh, advancement of, of humankind in history. People don't buy that anymore. And so you have, we have, until we make that connection, the political constituency for what I call uh, sane foreign policy, uh, it's just not there. Well, the irony is, is that, you know, when Trump was sort of shaking up the system, one of the, one of the arguments about Trump, it wasn't so much isolationism. It was, we don't win anymore. He always said, America doesn't win anymore. And he was really an indictment of both conservative and liberal internationalists, but not on the idea so much, but in from the jaws of victory you in know, Afghanistan. You know, Mark? whether you think we went, or it was right or wrong to go into Iraq, we clearly messed it up. Uh, we clearly didn't do a good job in a lot of the things we were trying to do in Afghanistan. Uh, and, and and so people, we should give up. And so, and so but, but but he was basically saying. But that's what he's saying now. We should give up. I'm not defending Trump. What I'm oh, saying is, I'm Danny. I'm trying to make a point, which is that. The conservative and liberal internationalists did a really bad job exactly. for over two administrations in a lot of ways in delivering on the on their promises. And so there was a, an element of Trump saying we don't win. And so when, when he strikes Soleimani, very popular. When he struck Syria twice, very popular. When he was the poll show, when he was threatening back in the fire and fury phase of our relationship with North Korea, very popular when he said that he might he might. Uh, Before we entered the French kissing phase exactly, of our relationship exactly. with North Korea. So, I mean, the so, point is, is that the, the American people are not isolationists. They're reluctant internationalists. And so the response to Trump was rules-based international order, that phrase, right? right. Like, that's, ironically, that's what Bernie's saying. We need a rules-based international right. order, not American might, right. but we need to create like this web of treaties and international organizations to take care, take care of the world because it's not our problem. Right, right. So, you know, I don't know what you've seen, but what I've seen in three years of the Trump administration is uh, uh, incoherence, okay? Mm -hmm. Chaos. And, and then if you look closely under the hood, it's an ongoing battle competition between all of those things that Trump campaigned on and all of the people he had to hire who don't believe any of those things. And sometimes Trump wins, sometimes those people win. Eventually the House wins. Eventually Trump gets his way on most of these things. But that unresolved chaos is just disaster for U.S. foreign policy because it's destroyed signaling, it's destroyed messaging, it's destroyed the ability of our allies to have any predictability. Although it has enhanced deterrence. Well, I, because when no one knows what the hell you're going to do, at least everybody's afraid of what you might do. Yeah, but on the other hand, a lot of people, a lot of bad actors have abused that vacuum to advance their For sure. policies and, and without any pushback whatsoever. Now, what I think, because sort of Bernie's foreign policy is the other side of that coin, but he's actually arguably more competent and has more thought out. I, I doubt that he would come in if elected president and bring back, you know, Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and all these Obama-Clinton people because he knows better, right? He's, so he's going to more drastically change the face of U.S. foreign policy, and I would say more efficiently. And that's going to have reverberating effects around the world. So it's not going to be like Trump where he's like one day he's kissing Kim Jong-un and the next day he's bombing Iran, right? Bernie has, is, is prepared to implement a foreign policy that would be a drastic departure. And that has huge implications, not just for America, but for people all over the world that we, again, in this political environment, we haven't even begun to really think of. All The farther I, farthest we could get is like, oh, it's a political vulnerability for him which is true. But if he were elected, well, that would have you know, much more serious implications that we haven't begun to talk about. Bernie speaks sort of glowingly of the United Nations' ability to solve problems. Is that a liability for him or does nobody give a damn anymore? 
in the litany of foreign policy issues, I don't think United Nations support ranks high yeah. one way or the other. You know, most people I talk to, voters, regular uh, Americans, say they think it's it's basically marginalized and unimportant and not a not a big issue. But what you're getting at, I think, is an important point to close on, which is that, you know, right now we have a system of alliances that underpins our strength and influence and power. And again, in the Munich Security Conference, you saw there's a lot of tension in those relationships, all right? And if Bernie is going to be president, then he's going to totally change the nature of all those relationships as well. And that is not just a, uh, about the United Nations. That's about all our alliances, all our counterterrorism partnerships. If he pulls us out of Syria and Afghanistan, as Trump may do anyway, you know, what does that say to all of the people there who we're working with? What does that have to do with our, our ability to fight But also terrorism? NATO. He's, I mean, he's been very hostile to NATO expansion. He's been very hostile to, to, to the whole notion of the transatlantic alliance and what it represents. Yes. It's almost as if uh, President Trump broke American foreign policy and uh, someone's got to put it back together. And if that's Joe Biden, well, then he's going to try to tape it together kind of in the way that it existed before. And if it's Bernie Sanders, well, he's going to take all those pieces and he's going to make something totally different. And that is not something that at this point in our country that I think is a good idea, but more importantly, that we can predict or that we can plan for. Uh, So that's a, a, a further set of disruptions, a further set of unknowns, a further set of Uh, really sort of important questions that he's going to be in charge of answering. Absolutely. Exit question. Does any of this matter? Is this going to move any votes? You know, know, some for sure. How many? We don't know. I think the what essentially it depends on what happens between now and the election because foreign policy matters when it's when things are on fire, when things are really bad. I remember 2004 foreign policy mattered a lot. Okay, and uh, not because people supported the Iraq war, but because it was going really badly and they didn't. George W. Bush was able to convince people that we shouldn't change horses in the middle of that situation. Right now, everything is teetering on the edge of disaster. North Korea, Kim Jong-un, if he's smart, and I think actually he is, will launch a provocation right around September, October. Right. The economy. An October surprise, you could call it. Exactly. The, the coronavirus <laughs> is going to tank the Chinese economy and take the rest of the economy with it, maybe. And that's going to be unsettling. Uh, and then when President Trump announces as he gets close to the election that maybe that we're pulling out of Afghanistan and Syria again, Syria for the third time. Right. That's going to cause chaos in that region as well. And we haven't even talked about Iran, which is still not over the Soleimani killing and still suffering under sanctions that they don't like. So when we get to November, if Trump can make the argument that, hey, the world is looking pretty cool, and pretty awesome right now, whether or not that's true, if he can sell that, then foreign policy won't matter at all. But on the downside risk, if all of his schemes and gambits are blowing up in his face, either figuratively or literally, voters are going to care a lot. Voters are going to hear it. But by that point, for Democrats, it may be too late. Awesome. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. You were terrific. Great column, too. Thank you. So I'm thinking about our conversation and wondering whether we should title this episode Stalin's Last Laugh. (laughs) I mean, who would have thought in 1989 that we would ever, within the next 30 years, be having a conversation about a leader of the United States who thought it was a good idea to have his honeymoon in Moscow just in 1988. It's just it's uh, Ironically, the year before, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. <laughs> he was, like, wrong and he was wrong late. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's right. He crazy, was wrong when everybody else was, was... As it was collapsing. Exactly. <laughs> you know, this system is great. It's much better than ours. 
boom, comes down the wall, boom, spread of freedom and democracy and rejection of socialism all across the world. Well, and what, what really actually sticks in my craw, you know, uh, look, I mean, there are a lot of people, I'm sure, among our listeners as well, who aren't going to agree with me about the Iraq war, and that that's fine. I will find you, though. But there are there are plenty. But what really sticks in my craw about Bernie Sanders's record is NATO expansion. Because, you know, I, I want to press people to think about this for a second. We were locked in a half-century-plus battle with the forces of evil. And the Soviet Union had, in the Warsaw Pact, which was the opposite side to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, to NATO... It had these captive nations, Poland, Hungary, what was then called Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, Romania. And the notion that after the collapse of the Soviet empire, we would not reach out to those countries and bring them into the West and embrace them and bring them into the West and extend our security umbrella over them. And that somebody would oppose that is to me so gross and so antithetical to everything that America stands for in the world. I just don't understand it. No, I agree with you. And look, but here's the interesting thing about Bernie Sanders is that there's a lot, as we talked about in the intro, there's a little bit of there's parallel between him and Trump in the sense they're both non-interventionists and they both want to pull back from the world. The differences are, you know, and I'm critical of a lot of elements of Donald Trump's foreign policy, as anyone who listens to this or reads my Washington Post column will know. The differences are is that Trump at least gets some things right. You know, he did enforce the red line in Syria and actually whack the regime twice. He did kill Soleimani. He is pouring a lot more money into the Defense Department. He's trying to follow a policy of peace through strength. I don't like his withdrawals. I don't like pulling out of Afghanistan and Syria uh, and not leaving at least some forces there to do that. But Bernie is like all of the bad things about Trump, but then none of the good things. Look, I mean, you know, you and I disagree about what some of the good things are about Trump. But I will say this. When Bernie Sanders criticized Donald Trump for abandoning the Kurds in Syria, I thought to myself, dude, you wouldn't have been there in the first place. Absolutely. There would be more than half a million people dead. ISIS would still be there. Al-Qaeda would still be there. You know, this is the problem. And this is the challenge for all of those, you know, all of those people. I completely agree that we in some ways have had an over-militarized approach to foreign policy, which has led to our unbelievably lame, you know, winning the peace efforts in Afghanistan, in in Iraq, and elsewhere. And I think that that's a really legit criticism that people have of me, my ilk, you, our ilk, and of our foreign policy in general. But I want people to remember that the opposite of having a military strategy in these places is, for the most part, in the world of Bernie Sanders and George Soros and the Koch brothers, all of whom are fellow travelers on this particular foreign policy, the opposite is doing nothing, doing nothing about the the genocide. And disarming also on top of that. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan, it's often said, intervened less in the world than almost any president in, in modern times. But he had a strong military. He rebuilt our military. You know, it's the old, if you want, if you believe in diplomacy, you have to believe in a strong military because you can't, your diplomacy has to be backed up by something. You know, the old phrase, Teddy Roosevelt, speak softly and carry a big stick. Without the big stick, speaking softly, speaking loud, doesn't matter how you speak if you don't have the stick. And so, you know, the, the fact that Bernie Sanders wants to gut our military in order to fund Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, pay off everybody's student loans, a bunch of working class who kids <laughs> don't go to college yeah. uh, to pay for the student loans of the elites who do go to college. All of this spending, gutting the military, 
you know, it's going to create more problems and, and more threats to the United States than less. You can't be you can't have good diplomacy if it's not backed up by strength. So last word on this. Really important to understand and everybody. The one thing that I would say is look with great skepticism at this claim that Sanders, but also Warren and others are making, which is, no, 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 it's not that we don't want to do anything in the world. It's that we want to support, you know, democracy in the world through diplomacy and peaceful means and development, okay? Because that's garbage. I want someone to show me the evidence that Bernie Sanders supported democracy promotion anywhere in his career. Because in fact, what he has supported is the antithesis of democracy. The Castros, the Chavezes, the Soviet leaders, the Ortegas. These are the people who he invited to Vermont when he was mayor of Burlington. He doesn't support democracy. He just opposes America. Yeah. Well, look, there's two types of people in the world. The people who wake up in the morning and say America is everything that's wrong in the world and the people who wake up in the morning and say America is mostly what's right in the world. And we're not perfect and we have our flaws, but we are what's good in the world. This country is freer, more prosperous, has more opportunity for people than any country in the history of the world. And we do more good for people around the world just by our presence and our and the peace that we have brought to the world by our strength. And I wake up in the morning and say, yeah, we're, we're, we've got our problems, but we're a force for good in the world. And Bernie Sanders doesn't really fundamentally believe that. Unfortunate, but true. Thanks, folks, for listening. It's great to have you again. Don't forget to send us your suggestions. Don't forget to subscribe per our sponsor, Mark Thiessen. And, <laughs> and see you next week. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.